Okay, let's get started. Um, sure. Today we're just going to do some introductions. Uh, so first, personal introductions. I'm Peter Beiersdorf, uh, physics faculty member. I know some of you are taking this as a chemistry course. Um, so welcome to the physics side of the world. This is the second time I've taught this course. Um, I teach it primarily from a physics background because that's what I have. I'll try to incorporate a little bit of chemistry, but that's not my background. There's probably a lot of you in here who know more chemistry than I do. So um, just understand that's where I'm coming from. If you have certain requests about where you want the course to go, I've got a couple, uh, couple undecided lectures towards the end of the semester. So particularly if you're in chemistry and you look at the syllabus and you say, I'd really like to see something that relates to X, Y, Z, um, I'd be happy to have anybody provide guest lectures if you're uh, knowledgeable about a particular area. Um, or I'd be happy to take suggestions for uh, ideas of certain lectures you might want to see um, regarding the applications of laser spectroscopy, which will be what we'll sort of wind up on after we've gone through the, the, whole, the whole course. Um, my email address, this is all in the syllabus. It's probably the best way to contact me. Um, my phone number and office are also listed here. So I'm available for office hours, uh, at least for some set time, Monday through Thursday. Easiest way is probably just to stay after class and talk to me. So I'll stay, along, stay around as long as there's people with questions, um, at least for half an hour. You know, so you can go to the bathroom, get a cup of coffee, come to my office, and I'll still be there. Um, no one shows up by 8.45. I'll probably head home once I'm done with my work. Uh, but if you do come and you have questions, I'm happy to stay as long as people have questions or things they want to go over. Uh, Monday, Wednesday, I guess that's today. Tuesday, Thursday, I have office hours, although I actually have them in room 242, which is the computer lab. Um, I do that because the other class I teach has some online homework, and so I like to do it where the students have access to a computer. But I'm available. I'm available to talk to you then. So if that's more convenient for you, you can come by and talk to me there. Um, just a little bit about my background. I have a background mostly in lasers and optics. Uh, I do precision interferometry for the LIGO project, which is a ground-based interferometer to detect space-based um, events that are of interest to the astrophysical community. So I do a lot of interferometry and laser work, which has some overlap with laser spectroscopy. Um, so as I mentioned before, my background's in, in physics and in lasers. So that's going to be sort of where the uh, emphasis of this course will be taught, um, just where I know more, more about. Um, the class will cover the theory of light and matter interaction, okay, which is really what laser spectroscopy is. There's a whole host of things you can do that involve the interaction of light and matter that wouldn't be thought of as spectroscopy. So we'll cover some of that too. Things like creating Bose-Einstein condensates, creating atomic lasers, creating atomic interferometers. Some of the really interesting cutting-edge physics is being done for precision measurements is being done with, um, with methods that involve sort of manipulating and blurring the lines between light and atoms. Okay, so we'll probably talk a little bit about that once we have the whole, um, the whole fundamentals covered on the interaction. 
Um, I'd like to know a little bit about you guys, as long as you're doing introductions. I'm not going to do personal introductions. Uh, I don't have the patience for that, but I'm curious how many people are coming from uh, chemistry department or chemistry background. Uh, and then I guess I'm guessing the rest of you are physics, but you can raise your hand if that's the case. Okay. Um, how many people have, uh, are currently working in industry? Okay, how many people have done laser spectroscopy or used spectroscopy for any of their research or any of their work? Okay, good. So um, that just gives me a sense, starting off, of where you are. I'll learn a lot more about you as the class goes on. Um, we're going to talk about very broad terms, what spectroscopy is today, uh, history of spectroscopy. This is a very fuzzy lecture. There's no math in it. So that will change uh, very rapidly. So we're going to start with quantum mechanics and the Bohr model of the atom, quantum mechanical model of the atom, talk about spectroscopic energy levels, and uh, sort of start there. And as the class progresses, we're actually going to have less and less math as we go along as we get into applications and uh, uses for the tool of laser spectroscopy. Okay, so I already told you a little bit about myself, my office hours. Um, I'd like to look at our web page right now. So I know that you're all capable of logging into a, a web page on your own. Despite that, I get 10 or 15 emails at the beginning of the semester from students who either missed a step or didn't understand something. So uh, I want to go ahead and uh, just show you what you're going to see when you go to the URL listed on the syllabus. This is my faculty's web page. And it has a link to all of the content that we're going to be using in the class. So primarily, there's a website. If you go to the class website, bookmark that. That has links to everything else you're going to need. But I also record all of the lectures. So you can subscribe to those in iTunes by clicking that. Or you can get the RSS feed and use any RSS reader. If you don't know what any of that means, ask a neighbor. But let's go into the website. The website is a uh, it's using WebCT, which some of you I know who have taken my classes before have used for the classes. You may have used them in another class, but uh, the campus just upgraded to a new edition of WebCT. So they just merged with Blackboard. They totally redid their interface. So even if you've used one of these class websites before, a lot of this stuff is actually going to be new or a little different format. Okay, so when you go to log in, you need to use your username, which is just going to be your uh, student ID number. Your password initially is going to be four digits. It's the month and date of your birth. Okay, so if you were born May 15th, that would be 0515 would be your initial password. And you can change that once you log on. Um, if you've had a WebCT account for a class in the past, your old password may or may not work. I don't know. So you're just going to have to try. And, uh, if it doesn't work, there's that little forgot your password option to have it emailed to you. A couple comments. Um, I don't administer the accounts. I used to. So this is, again, if you've had me in a class before, you've had WebCT before. Instructors no longer administer the accounts. I can't create an account for you. If you're visiting and you want to, uh, want to view the class or uh, monitor the class, audit the class. I can't create an account for you. The only way to get an account is to be registered. Okay, so I'm guessing a lot of people haven't registered yet. 
until you register, you won't be able to access the web page. Okay, so that's just that's the way it is. Um, if you email me, I can send you back copies of lecture notes or other content that's on here, but you're just going to have to register before you have full access. If you register, um, particularly if you're registering as a chem student or enrolling in this uh, as chem 268, then I think you may not automatically get an account set up because there was a note sent out to all the instructors that said if you have a cross-listed class, which this is, then only one of the two cross-listings automatically gets the account set up. Uh, if that's the case, you just need to email me and say, hey, I registered, but I still can't log in. And there's some procedure that I can go through that sort of links the two cross-listed versions of the class. So um, that's what you need to log in. Once you're in, the first thing I want you to do is to go to the My Blackboard link, and this is where you have all your personal settings. They affect not only um, this web page, but any other classes that you might be taking that also use WebCC or Blackboard. So here's going to be a list of any classes that you're enrolled in. Up here is the My Settings button, and that's where you can edit your password, which you're probably going to want to do. Um, but you can also edit your email address. So I believe that's going to be put auto-populated with whatever's on file for you in the PeopleSoft system, the campus uh, computer system. But if it's wrong, or if it's empty, or it's not the address that you regularly check, uh, you should go in and change it. So you can just edit, you know, edit profile and type in a new address. The reason is, there's two reasons. One is, if I send out an announcement to the class, the way I do it is through this web page, I say send message to everybody, and those messages will get forwarded to that mail address. So if it's not an address that you're checking, you might show up to class and not realize that the class has been canceled, or that the homework is not due that day, or something like that. So I want to be able to communicate relatively quickly with you using that email address. Um, the other one which is really important is, if you send me a message using this system, or post on the discussion board, and I want to reply to you, if you don't have an email address on file, I can't. There's no reply to address. I can't reply to you from my email program. I have to go in and log in and, and do it all through the uh, web page rather than through my email account. That just slows things down. So if you send me a message saying, how do you do homework too, it might take me a day instead of an hour to get back to you on that. Okay, so uh, that's why I want you to do that. Um, you're welcome to enter any other information here in your profile, but it's not required. Okay, so the syllabus is online. If you lose your paper copy, there it is. I've also posted lecture notes, so you can Click there and download today's lecture. So I post lecture notes sort of in a roughly chapter by chapter in the textbook block. So we might not cover, that might represent two or three days worth of class lectures. So you just want to download those ahead of time. I usually post them three or four days before I give a lecture. You can just check in and see if you have the latest copy of, of whatever notes are posted. Um, frequently there's errors in the slides. That's uh, fact of life. So in order to correct the errors and in order to sort of compensate you for having to deal with that, um, I give extra credit to anybody who corrects errors in my slides. 
So you get what amounts to a half a percent of extra credit for your overall grade, your final course grade, for submitting a lecture note error. You can do that right here. What that actually does, that link will take you to a discussion board, a discussion board that I've set up for the purpose of, um, of keeping track of all these potential errors. So if you find an error in a message, error in a, in a slide, just create a message and in the subject put the slide number and in the message put, you know, whatever you thought was wrong and, and the corrected version of it. So all the slides, and I realize you don't have these printed out yet, but have a number down at the bottom. This is roughly the chapter in the textbook we'd be in, in the slide number. Okay, so I'll award points to the first person to correct any given error. So once it's been corrected, I won't award any more points. And I'll only award points for substantive errors. So errors that would actually have physical consequences. So if there's a typo, I would appreciate you telling me so I can fix it, but I generally don't give extra credit points for spelling errors and, and typos. Or um, if there's one error that sort of propagates through a couple slides, that would only be, I'd only give one, one point of extra credit for that entire sequence of errors. So in any event, um, you can use that, that resource to uh, submit, submit errors and to uh, get extra credit. A couple other things about the web page. Homework assignments will be posted here. This is how you will have to get your homework assignments. The first one's already been posted. It's due, let's click it and find out when it's due. I want to say February 5th, 6th, February 5th. Only this class meets Monday, Wednesday, not Tuesday, Thursday, right? Okay, so I need to fix that. That'll be due. Well, I'll change that. It'll be Monday or, or, or Wednesday, but I'll update that. Um, so I will post homework online. I will post the solutions as well as soon as the homework's been turned in. Okay, so what that means is I don't accept late homework. So if getting the homework in is going to be a problem, if you have to miss class, and you can't physically turn it in, you can email it or fax it to me. Um, and then there's also a link to the podcast. So you only need to subscribe once, but if you want to do that, you can follow that link, subscribe, and then get all the lectures downloaded onto your computer to view in iTunes or on your iPod. And then just the last a couple more things I want to show you about the, the web page. There's an, anon an anonymous feedback form that you can use to send me comments. So please do that. If you have issues about the way the class is being taught or you have suggestions, you can use that form. It's anonymous unless you choose to identify yourself. There's a spot you can enter your name if you want to. You don't have to. Um, if you want me to email you back and address your comments, obviously you need to include an email address and it no longer becomes anonymous. But uh, I can react to that in real time, so it's not like those student evaluations that you fill out at the end of the semester, which really don't do you any good. Um, they do the students who take the class the next time some good, but please use that. Um, 
like I said, I can tailor the course as we go, depending on how student feedback uh, is. The other sort of tool in here that I want to point out is the My Grades. Um, as content gets graded, homeworks, exams, I will enter it into the, the uh, web page gradebook so you'll be able to view your grade. Um, so you should just keep track of that. Just make sure that the grades that are recorded match what you expected. Um, occasionally, there's potential for, for an error. And so it's a lot easier if you catch that sort of during the semester than have it go unnoticed and, and get a different grade than you expected at the end of the class once everyone's left for summer vacation. Okay, let's talk about the textbooks. There's no officially required textbook for this course. However, if you are going to go out and you want to, if you want me to tell you what textbook to buy, this one by Demtroder, uh, laser spectroscopy, it's not this one. Well, that's embarrassing. It's a yellow book, which looks much like this. I accidentally grabbed this one off of my shelf. Um, it's called Laser Spectroscopy 3rd Edition by Demtroder, and it's the one that the lecture will most closely follow. Okay, that said, about 50% of the class lecture will not be from that textbook. So it's not like um, you can just read that as a substitute for a class lecture. It's a, very, um, it's a very good reference for anyone who's going to be doing laser spectroscopy. Typically, for very good references, they're A, expensive, and B, not that easy to read, right? Because they're filled with all the technical details. Okay, so if you want something that's a little easier to read, An Introduction to Laser Spectroscopy by Andrews and Demidov, which is this book, is a little easier to read and covers roughly the same content. There's other books out there. Um, Ankit, you had one that you had used in a class before that you liked, right? Modern spectroscopy. I, I looked through that briefly. It looked like it had uh, useful content in it. And there's a few things that we're going to do that um, are a little bit more uh, specific to other disciplines. So we'll do some things involving lasers, frequency stabilization, um, frequency stabilization, and uh, locking of lasers. And I'll draw upon this, which there's nothing actually visible on this book, but this is a uh, copy of Siegmund's lasers textbook. This is the sort of the Bible for lasers. If, you're, if you do laser work or you expect to do laser work, this is a very good investment. It's a very good book, very comprehensive, covers basically everything you need to know about lasers. And then finally, for some of the optics stuff that we do, um, some of the, the fundamentals of optics, I'm going to use... Uh, Introduction to Modern Optics by Fowles. I'll draw content from that. And I recommend that primarily because if you've already taken a class in optics, then you're probably not going to need a separate reference textbook when we talk about some of the fundamentals of optics. You probably either understand it or you'll have whatever textbook you'd used in the past to draw upon. If you feel that you need to go out and buy a book to brush up on, on your optics background, this one costs 20 bucks. 20 bucks, it's soft cover. 
and it pretty much has, in a very uh, abbreviated fashion, everything you need to know about optics. Okay, so that's why I put that up there. And all of these books are on reserve at King Library. Okay, so if you just want to go check, check one out for a couple hours, I think you have a 24-hour limit in which you can check it out and view them. Okay, so whether or not you buy the textbooks up to you, um, has anybody been to the bookstore recently to see if the textbook is in stock? It's not there? Okay. Yeah, so there was some confusion. Uh, Is that it? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, you have to go and ask the Okay. So this course is also, for those of you who enrolled in Physics 268, this is also Chemistry 268. Okay, so. Yeah. And that's, that's the only one that I asked the, the bookstore to purchase. So if you want any of these others, you can try your hand at Amazon or, or wherever you buy your textbooks. Okay, any questions about the texts? Um, okay, so laser spectroscopy is an established field. It's a number of things. It's, it's a field, it's a tool, and it's something that's necessary as a background for doing a lot of other interesting things you might want to do in physics. Okay, so it all centers around the interaction of light and matter, which I mentioned. So we're going to cover laser sources. So in two or three lectures, we'll cover what you would get in Physics 168, which is a, a proper class on lasers. We'll cover a little bit of instrumentation and techniques that would be relevant for sort of any experimental work that you do, regardless of whether it's laser spectroscopy or, or uh, mechanical engineering stress testing. Just, just experimental techniques, um, data, signal to noise, things like that. We will discuss uh, the theory of light and matter interaction, and that will be the bulk of the course. The goal is that by the end of the course, you can look at an experiment and understand an experiment that uses some of these uh, laser spectroscopy techniques and understand what basically every element in the experiment is there for. And you can look at different experiments and understand why the different experimental apparatuses have been chosen, why they're optimized for different data that's trying to be collected. Um, so basically, you'll have the tools you need to design an experiment to do some laser spectroscopy, whether that's for um, determining the amount of a particular compound uh, element in a compound, whether it's to monitor um, monitor some process that's going on, whether it's to observe the Earth's atmosphere, um, for whatever purpose, you'll be able to uh, use the basic techniques in laser spectroscopy. So we'll start by covering fundamentals. So talk about absorption of light, both the classical picture, which is very useful for understanding things like the index of refraction, how it changes as a function of wavelength, such as dispersion. Um, a lot of nonlinear effects which occur in matter can be described just by the classical absorption of light. But then we'll also talk about the quantum picture, which is really necessary to understand energy levels and the uh, fundamental interaction of a photon with an atom. We'll talk about optical spectra, what they tell you about the elements that they're associated with. 
we'll produce the quantum mechanical model of an atom. So basically, we'll look at the hydrogen atom, we'll look at its, uh, its orbitals and its energy levels. This is something that would be straight out of a uh, quantum mechanics course. So it's very basic quantum mechanics, but since I'm not going to assume that everybody is, is, is familiar and refreshed on their quantum mechanics, we're just going to cover this ourselves from scratch. And then we'll talk about light, different, site, different sources of light, including incoherent lamps and lasers, uh, some of the differences, some of the advantages of lasers, some of their properties and distinguishing characteristics. Um, we'll talk about detectors as well, so that you can determine what detector would be appropriate for a given experiment, how to match up detectors with different sources, so you have the right ones, the right detector technology. And then talk about how you measure wavelength, which is essentially what recording a spectrum is all about, recording different wavelengths of light uh, and the power associated with those wavelengths on your instrument. We'll talk about why materials produce spectra, and what the frequency dependence of those spectra look like. Talk about the shape of spectral lines talk a little bit about signal and noise, which is just general experimental uh, techniques to overcome low signal to noise ratios so that you can get a reasonable signal from your spectrum. And then we'll talk about all sorts of methods in laser spectroscopy to optimize a particular experiment for a given, uh, a given goal. So we'll talk about all sorts of basic methods. Uh, emission and absorption spectroscopy, talk about pump probe methods, it's more of an active method of interrogating a sample, talk about Raman spectroscopy for observing molecules, and time resolved spectroscopy for observing dynamic effects. And then we've got a time here where we can talk about applications, and right now I've only got three or four applications there, but like I mentioned, I'm happy to add a few. Um, we'll talk about remote sensing, you hear it called LIDAR, it's like observing the atmosphere using lasers. Uh, some medical applications, for example, monitoring glucose levels in diabetics uh, without necessarily having to draw blood. We'll look at the Ramsey experiment, which is a famous experiment, led to a Nobel Prize, and is relevant for frequency stabilization. And then we'll talk about some advanced techniques that are a little bit beyond um, what's classical laser spectroscopy, but use this interaction of light and matter to do some interesting things. So frequency stabilization of lasers is a big, uh, is a big field because a lot of physical measurements measure length. Right? If you measure length, you'd want to measure it relative to some standard. Right? What is the standard for length? It's the meter, and how is a meter defined? defined by the speed of light in a vacuum and the distance that light will travel in a certain time. That time is let's see, 1 over the speed of light in seconds. Um, so, so if you want to measure distance very accurately, you need to know time very accurately. And for that, you need a good clock. And one of the really good clocks that we have is, is lasers. Laser fields oscillate very fast, very high frequency. We can use them as a clock. But in order for that frequency to be known, you need to stabilize it. 
that's one of the things that we'll talk about doing that has applications all over physics, chemistry, um, engineering, all sorts of science. We'll talk about optical cooling and trapping of atoms, which is necessary if you want to condense them into some sort of interesting quantum state, like a Bose-Einstein condensation. Those are things that are useful for building atomic lasers, where you use the de Broglie wavelength of matter rather than the optical wave of, a, of an electromagnetic wave to be your source. And then you can do interferometry with much higher resolution because you've got much smaller scale uh, structure. The wavelength of an atomic wave is much smaller than an optical wave. You can get very high precision uh, length measurements essentially using atom interferometers. And that all relies on understanding the interaction of light and matter to cool the matter into a state where it's, you can get a macroscopic amount of matter in a single quantum state. So we'll describe a little bit about that. Squeezing. Squeezing is a technique to overcome the standard quantum limit, uh, basically the Heisenberg uncertainty relationship. It's a technique to trade off uncertainty in one variable for uncertainty in another so that you can minimize um, noise, quantum mechanical noise in a measurement. And that's sort of where we'll end up. Okay, so you see we'll cover um, a broad, we'll cover the, the basis for doing a broad range of interesting experiments and, and applications. Okay, course grading. We'll have two midterms, a final, and then roughly weekly homework. They'll all be weighted equally. They're each 25% of your grade. So I already mentioned late homework won't be accepted. Likewise, I don't give makeup midterms. So if you have to miss a midterm, just contact me, explain what the situation is, and we'll see if we can arrange something. So I'm a reasonable person. So the fact that I don't give mid makeup midterms doesn't mean you'll be screwed. But it just means you have to contact me as soon as, as, soon as you know you have, have a conflict. The dates are posted in the syllabus. So you can check those, schedule around those. Um, the schedule that's in there may change, but I won't change the dates of the midterms. So those will be fixed. Uh, for homework, I encourage you to work on assignments in groups. So typically people do that. Um, I know a lot of people meet in the physics club room downstairs the day before homework is due typically and uh, share, share their knowledge there. The other place where you can share knowledge, if you don't have a chance to physically meet, or even if you do, um, is I have a discussion board set up on the webpage for homework help. So I've already posted a hint there for the first homework. So hopefully that encourages you to go there, see the discussion board, and then maybe post your own hints or post your own questions. Um, really, if you have any questions you want to ask me about the homework, um, I'm happy to answer, you know, or at least attempt to answer them. But it would be great if you would post those to the discussion board so that I can also respond there so that everybody gets the benefit of whatever, whatever help I give to you. Okay. Um, so look around, there's 20 or so people here. If you post to the discussion board, like any uh, online resource, the advantage is you can do that 24-7. You might get responses at random hours of the night, which is great. This isn't a huge community. Don't expect that you know, someone's going to supply an answer within five minutes of posting it. It just doesn't happen that way. I check at least once a day. Um, but you know, if, if homework's due in an hour, don't just think that you can you know, 
ask a question and expect to get an answer immediately there. Uh, this is basically, I'm just going over everything in the syllabus. This was in there as well. Um, there's some boilerplate stuff that I put in about college and department policies. Uh, basically, the only one that I want to point out is you're responsible for knowing the add drop deadlines and, and taking care of that. So um, you know, please keep tabs on that, particularly if you're waiting to add the class. You know, don't let that add deadline pass you by. If you decide this class isn't for you and you want to drop, you might want to make sure you, you know, evaluate that decision before the drop deadline passes by. I typically get people asking me after the deadline has passed if they can drop the class. I'm amenable to it, but there's nothing I can do to get you out of the class without having a late drop, I mean, without having, I don't know exactly what the consequences are on your transcript, but there's some, some form of late drop that doesn't look good and, and I can't override that. Uh, as far as in class, my only rules, I don't really have too many rules, but if you're using a cell phone, you know, please don't answer it in class. If you have something you need to be contacted for, just put it in vibrate mode. You can walk out of the class and answer it. I'm okay with that. Um, work in groups on homework, I strongly encourage that. Um, if you work in one, groups of one or two, you can even uh, submit a single homework with all of your names on it. Um, I'm okay with that. Um, don't do it for more than groups of three or so. It just becomes, I think, un unwieldy if you do. But um, if you have issues, come talk to me. If you have uh, issues you don't want to talk to me directly, use the anonymous feedback form because I do sort of tailor the class as it goes and I don't want to find out after the fact that you weren't happy with the way the class is being taught. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about laser spectroscopy. Um, it comes from a combination of Latin and Greek words. Spectron is Latin for ghost, and I guess this is scopi, as in microscopy or telescopy or whatever your favorite scopi is. Uh, in Greek, means to see. So spectroscopy literally means to see a ghost. And the reason for that is when you want to learn about an element or a, a material, I should say, and what's in it, um, you can only get so far looking at it with your eyes. At some point, one of the things we do is we shine light through it and see what gets through, what gets scattered, what gets absorbed and then re-emitted. We're looking at this sort of secondary effect, not just the light reflecting off of it and imaging on our, on our cornea, but really this, this sort of secondhand effect, sort of like looking at a ghost, to infer the existence of something else. Okay, so as you can imagine, when you have to do this, you have to know a little bit about what you're looking at or what you might be seeing in order to understand what effect it's going to have on the light, in order to sort of trace your way back to this indirect effect. Um, and so you need to understand some of the basics of matter, quantum picture of matter, and light in order to really get a good picture for what a spectrum tells you. Okay, so typically, what a spectrum tells you is about the energy levels of a material. Okay, so I say the energy levels, that could be the electronic energy levels, different quantum states of the electrons in an atom or a molecule, and tell you about other things that affect the energy of the atom or molecule, such as 
vibration or rotation of the molecule. can tell you about some of the properties of the material, such as the symmetry. Molecules that have certain symmetry don't produce certain types of, uh, certain types of interactions that can be observed or not observed through looking at their spectrum. And it can tell you about some things that happen dynamically if you can monitor the spectrum in time. So if you understand these fundamental issues, then spectroscopy becomes a tool that you can use to analyze materials. Okay, so the immediate questions are, what does light do to a material? So say that a spectrum is the light that comes out of a material after we shine some light in. What does the light do to the material? You shine light in, how do you get a spectrum out? And the class is titled laser spectroscopy, so there's something special about using lasers as your light source. What advantages do they offer? And if we observe a spectrum, what actually are we observing? So I mentioned today we're going to start with very basic things, not really go into any of the math, but uh, take a very broad overview. So in a broad sense, a spectrum, taking a spectrum looks like this. Uh, we shine light onto some unknown, possibly unknown, maybe it's known, sample, and we observe what comes out. We can do that by sending the light straight through, and then we observe essentially what was absorbed in the material. We call that absorption spectroscopy. Or shine light on the material and then look at the light that gets the secondary light that gets emitted. That we call emission spectroscopy. Okay, so um, the reason that when you shine light on a material that it doesn't just go straight through is that you have scattering that's a classical process. And you have absorption, which is a quantum mechanical process. You have photons being absorbed. And when they're absorbed, the sample, the molecules, the atoms get pumped to a higher energy level. The energy of the photon goes somewhere. It goes into the material. Well, that material is then excited. It has some extra energy in it, and it will eventually decay back to its ground state. When it does, it gives off light, and that light in general, will be omnidirectional. It can go in any direction. So you're shining the flashlight through this way, it absorbs some of that light, and sends it this way. Okay, so some of the different uh, processes under which that occur have different names. There's fluorescence, there's phosphorescence, a couple terms you've probably heard. I have a fluorescent item and a phosphorescent item here. This is a marker, this is a very scary ghost. Not so scary now, but if I turn off the lights, it's very, very scary. So let me charge it a little bit. Um, one of these is fluorescent, one is phosphorescent. So does anybody want to take a guess as to which is which? Here's a This is the phosphorescent one. The big hint was that this is a fluorescent marker. So it's properly labeled as a fluorescent marker. And these are both examples of things where light hits them and then they sort of absorb the energy and then 
emitted, like in this picture. Uh, so what's the difference between these two? They both absorb light and then emit it. So the difference, so the, say the cap of this marker is fluorescent. It's fluorescent yellow, right? It looks bright. It looks brighter, in fact, than the white background. First question, how is that? White is, something that's white reflects all wavelengths of light. So all the light hitting this blackboard, this whiteboard, gets reflected. You see all of it. Something that's yellow is going to absorb the, uh, like the red and the green, the red and the blue. Right? So if it's absorbing the red light and the blue light, why is it brighter than the white background? Yeah, it's ta actually taking energy from the ultraviolet light, which we can't see, and it's converting it to visible. You can actually get more visible light out than you put in, but there's conservation of energy. So it's actually absorbing in ultraviolet, and if we could see in the ultraviolet, this would look very dark. It's just converting the wavelength. Uh, the phosphorescent thing doesn't really look special at all right now. It's not doing <coughs> that. Here's my big demo. See how this goes. I think it kind of works. So it glows. So phosphorescence is just uh, essentially a term for glow in the dark. So to define those a little bit better, fluorescence is what occurs when you have excitation of an atom or molecule into a singlet <coughs> state. And then that singlet state decays back to the ground state. In a singlet state, if you have a simple molecule like hydrogen, or a simple atom like hydrogen, where you have a proton and an electron, you have two spin one-half particles, and they can combine to be aligned or anti-aligned. They can both be spin up, both be spin down. Or you can have some combination of spin up and spin down. Okay, and this particular combination of spin up and spin down gives you an angular momentum so each, each particle, the electron and the proton, has an angular momentum from its spin of one-half h-bar. They can combine to give you a net angular momentum of zero. That's called a singlet state. And the ground state of most atoms is a singlet state. And when they absorb energy, they go up into a higher energy level that's also a singlet state. They can very quickly then uh, decay back to the ground state by giving off a photon. Because the upper state and the lower state have the same angular momentum associated with them. So you can have an interact. We know that angular momentum is conserved in collisions and interactions, right? So if you have an interaction from one state to another state and they have the same angular momentum, that's allowed. But <coughs> phosphorescence is emission from an excited triplet state and a triplet state is one where two spin one-half particles have a net angular momentum of h-bar, one h-bar. So two particles with their spin aligned gives you, their each spin one-half gives you a net spin of one, their angular momentum of one h-bar. So whether they're aligned up or aligned down or have this combination of anti-alignment, there are three possible arrangements for those two particles. 
that give you a net angular momentum of one, that's why this is called a triplet. There are three degenerate states, three states that have the same amount of angular momentum. There is one possible state that had uh, zero angular momentum. That was called a singlet state. This is called a triplet state. Well, a triplet state has different angular momentum than the singlet ground state. So a process by which an atom or a molecule decays from a triplet state to a singlet state is called forbidden. They have different angular momentums associated with them, so you can't get that process occurring easily. I'm not going to define what I mean by easily right now. Let me just say it takes, it's much less probable that an atom will go from an excited state to a, to a lower state if the angular momentum of the two states are different. That means it takes longer. The energy gets stored for a longer period of time, which is why when I turn off the lights, this thing glows for a few seconds. It takes a couple of seconds for the excited atoms in this uh, material here to decay to the ground state. So for, for most of the atoms to decay, whether you define that as 50% or 1 over E or whatever threshold you use, uh, it takes a much longer time when you have uh, a phosphorescent material. So fluorescent material, that's uh, the time frame over which it takes the excited atom to decay is more like a nanosecond. Basically, it's instantaneous for us. As soon as I turn off the lights, you don't see this fluorescent marker anymore. Okay, um, I'd like to take a break. Like two or three minutes, long enough. If you need to go to the bathroom, you can. You can stretch your legs. Um, and we'll meet back literally in like three minutes, and we'll start up again. Well, it depends on what the light starts at. If you have broadband spectrum, right, then the primary colors, yeah, it's well, red, red, green, blue. Actually, I probably misspoke a little bit, but if you look at like one of those color charts that you might see in like an art book or something, right, uh, what you'll generally have is like, obviously this is green and red and blue, and then you've got, I guess green and blue is yellow, green and red is purple, and red and blue, oh no, red and blue is purple. Green, what am I missing? Red, uh, red green, blue, yellow, and uh, green and red would give you sort of This, this is white, right? So if you want to see yellow, you have to absorb red from white light. Just this, this is just a Venn diagram. So here you've got a combination of red, green, and blue. You take away the red, and you're left with just green and blue. So, well, so okay, in terms of um, if you want to make a, um, like a semiconductor, that's going to only allow a certain light to pass through. That's a, that's a little different. Generally, because um, what you probably are looking at there is some absorption 
as a function of wavelength. So you have uh, some, some range of the spectrum that would be considered red, orange, yellow, green, blue, right, violet. So there's, this is sort of a physical spectrum. This is sort of uh, a psychological uh, perception. But certainly to make yellow here, if you take away the red, orange, green, blue, violet wavelengths, and you have a peak at whatever that is, like uh, five, not 580 or so is yellow. Um, but you could also make something that appears yellow by having, I guess, just the green and the red. This is yellow. If you have just the green and the red, your eye will blend those two and perceive it as yellow. Yeah, so it depends on what you mean by yellow light. Perceived as yellow or literally spectrally yellow. Okay, let's start back up. Uh, we'll go through a little bit of history. It's probably the only time where I'll really discuss history. Um, most of the history of this stuff is before my time, so I look it up and put it together in a couple slides and I'll present it for you now and I probably won't touch it again. Um, so spectroscopy started really in the 1600s, Newton's. Newton was first to observe that light can be split into the different colors of the rainbow. Right? And so a rainbow is basically a spectrum, a spectrum of sunlight. Um, and that was pretty much it. Light was made up of all these different colors. That was an interesting thing, but nobody really did anything scientific with it. Um, about 1800, people realized that sunlight is not just visible light, but also has infrared and ultraviolet components. Herschel and Ritter showed that. About the same time, Wollaston, whose name you might recognize from the Wollaston prism, particular geometry of glass that's used to separate light into its spectrum, um, Wollaston observed that there are dark lines in the solar spectrum. So that's still a type of observation that's used to identify what stars are made of, what the composition, age, and all sorts of parameters of stars are. He didn't really understand why, what their physical significance was. Uh, that waited for Fraunhofer 12 years later. He was able to explain those, and he invented the diffraction grating as a method to observe the spectrum. Prior to that, uh, prisms had been used to split light into a spectrum. So the diffraction grating had a few advantages. We'll talk about those advantages during the course. Um, He realized that the reason that there are absorption lines in the solar spectrum are because the spectrum, the, the sun is made out of gas. Gases are atoms or molecules, depending on the gas, that have different distinct energy levels that can, actually he didn't realize there were the energy levels. What he realized was that certain gases could absorb certain wavelengths. So the presence of these absorption spectra in the sun signified there were certain elements in the sun. Uh, he studied the absorption lines in other stars using a telescope, and he invented the diffraction grating, which as I mentioned has some advantages over a prism. One is that if you know the geometry of the grating, you can make absolute wavelength measurements using it. 
whereas a prism only makes relative measurements. Kirchhoff, whose name you might recognize from any circuit class you've taken, the Kirchhoff's rules, Kirchhoff's loop, um, realized that each atomic element had its own characteristic spectrum. So you've probably seen these demonstrations in, in uh, maybe in high school chemistry class. You hold a penny in, on a Bunsen burner and it glows green, I want to say. Copper glows green. Um, different elements will produce different spectrum. So he realized that and made the connection then that if you studied an object that you didn't know what it was made of, you could relate the spectrum that you saw to the spectra of things that you did understand, which is really, to a large part, what spectroscopy is used for. Uh, Foucault, whose name you recognize probably from a Foucault pendulum, it's the pendulum you see at the Science Museum that's knocking down dominoes every 15 minutes. Um, he was the first to make a laboratory spectrum, a laboratory uh, spectrograph. So people had observed the spectrum of the sun, but they weren't able to reproduce this type of uh, experiment in a laboratory. He used a flame with sodium light. Sodium has a characteristic yellow spectrum. That's why the sodium lamps that you see always are very yellow. Bunsen, again a familiar name from the Bunsen burner, uh, explained the lines in the sun. He worked with Fraunhofer and they explained the lines in the sun as um, the absorption from the hydrogen in the outer layers of the solar corona. So the outer edge of the sun is cooler than the inside. The inside is very hot. It's a thermal black body giving off a broad spectrum of light. The outer layers are cooler and act more like uh, an isolated sample of a gas and that they'll absorb individual uh, discrete energy levels and then give off those discrete energy levels. Rather than acting as a black body, it acts as more of a, uh, a quantum mechanically isolated uh, object. Balmer, Rydberg, Berga, Paschen, Lyman, not up here. Some names that are familiar from the series of spectral lines for hydrogen. You probably saw that in your first quantum mechanics class, maybe a chemistry class. Um, they determine the empirical relations for the frequency of spectral lines observed in hydrogen. Hydrogen is the simplest atom, it's the simplest uh, material to study. It just has one proton, one electron around it. And so they observed that there were certain equations that they could come up with. Again, they were entirely empirical gave the wavelength or the frequency of the uh, either absorption or emission of light from the material in terms of in terms of various integers. You didn't really know what those integers meant, but when you plug in different values for n, you get different wavelengths, and the spectrum had different wavelength components to it. So they started the mathematical understanding of spectra. Bohr came along and created a model of the atom that explained a lot of this. And we'll go over that model. It's, this is basically the planetary model where you have electrons going around in orbits around the, uh, the nucleus. Uh, this is useful for understanding a lot of what was known at the time, a lot about the spectra. It had a few things that were curious, like the fact that 
these uh, sort of orbiting electrical charges never emitted classical radiation. They didn't fall into the center of the, the nucleus. Um, so there were some holes in it, and those holes were filled later by uh, quantum mechanics. So Michelson, who uh, was part of the famous Michelson-Morley experiment, did a lot of work with, uh, with spectra, uh, spectral wavelengths as a standard for the meter. So remember, his big thing was interferometers. Interferometers are a way to measure distance. And he used uh, spectroscopic sources where he knew the wavelength very precisely um, and then measured those wavelengths in order to determine the length of a meter in terms of optical wavelengths or vice versa, the length of optical wavelengths in terms of a standard meter. And at the time, which was turn of the century, um, the meter was defined in terms of a particular piece of metal. Right? There was a certain, it was one meter long, and that was what a meter was. So he did a lot of the pioneering work on uh, defining a standard which was more universal. And in 1983, almost 100 years later, the meter was redefined, um, as Liz mentioned, to be based on the speed of light. So it has an exact value. So a meter is not, is not a, uh, a quantity that you need to reference. It's actually a defined quantity. Depends on the speed of it comes from the speed of light, which is also a defined quantity. So that means, as I mentioned before, that an accurate wavelength measurement is related to the frequency of a laser source. Then, the better you can measure the frequency of a source, the better you can determine the wavelength of something. So recently, very recently, 2005, uh, Glauber, Hall, and Hodge were given the Nobel Prize for their work in laser spectroscopy. And what they did is they found a way to make particular, uh, particular atomic resonances, which are used to define the standard of time, to reference those over the entire visible spectrum. So if you have a particular frequency um, of an oscillator that you use to define your standard of time, for our purposes, let's consider a clock. It ticks every second. If you have a one-second interval that defines your standard of time, if you want to relate that standard to something at a very different frequency, an hour, a day, a year, a century, you need some way to create a secondary standard. And that's what they did. So they took some, some microwave standards, which were, were very well-defined, and they allowed those to be referenced to optical standards. And we'll discuss their experiment and how they did that using what's called an optical comb. So that sort of brings us up to date on the uh, history of spectroscopy. History of lasers doesn't go back as far, but it's worth mentioning. Um, so what is a laser? A laser is a particular form of light that we use. It stands for light amplified by stimulated emission of radiation, hence the, uh, the name laser. And typically, a laser contains some gain medium, some material which is manipulated to have, there's a lot of ways of saying it, but manipulated to have a thermodynamic inversion. One of the higher energy states becomes higher populated than one of the lower energy states. And typically, thermodynamically, you would expect to have the lowest energy states the most populated, 
The higher energy states have lower and lower population. The population falls off according to the Boltzmann distribution, which depends on temperature. Well, in a laser, some of the higher energy states have a larger population, and they can be triggered to decay into a lower energy state by the passing of a photon. You have a pair of mirrors that cause photons along the axis of that laser to resonate between the mirrors. In doing so, they trigger an avalanche of these excited states decaying into the lower energy states, giving off more photons, which build up this oscillation between the cavities, between the cavity mirrors, and eventually leak out through one of the mirrors as a laser beam. So what's interesting about lasers, um, or what's significant about them, is that their output light is spatially and temporally coherent, which means you can do things like split it, manipulate the different beams separately, and then recombine them, and still compare what you did to one beam to what you did to the other beam, and not have all that information lost uh, through them being incoherent. You can have very high intensity, which is important when the amount of light you're collecting limits your ability to see something. And they have very narrow spectral characteristics. So those mirrors that cause the light to resonate back and forth define a frequency filter that only allow a very narrow frequency of light to resonate in the laser. So what you get out is very nearly a delta-like function in frequency, one very specific wavelength coming out of the laser, which is exactly what you want if you're trying to measure how a material absorbs or emits different wavelengths. You'd like to have a very specific wavelength you can interrogate it with and then maybe be able to tune that wavelength. So, if you're using a laser to do this, some of the properties you might care about are the wavelength that comes out. It's a very narrow wavelength. It's not like white light. So you need a wavelength that corresponds to the region of the spectrum you're interested in measuring. But you may also need to consider power level. Certain classes of lasers, certain types of lasers, scale well to high power. Others do not. So that may drive the choice of one laser material over another. The tunability is a big issue. If you have a measurement that needs to be made at one particular wavelength, you may be able to choose any, wave, any laser that produces that wavelength. If you need to scan over a region of wavelengths to observe how, for example, the absorption of a substance changes as a function of wavelength, you need to be able to tune your laser. Certain lasers are more tunable than others. And we'll talk about what gives rise to the tunability and what types of lasers are tunable and which ones are not. Uh, beam quality, temporal characteristics, coherence length, these are all other secondary issues which may affect your choice in choosing a laser for an experiment. Another one which can easily be overlooked in a textbook explanation of, of what lasers uh, do are the ease and use, the ease and reliability of different lasers. Semiconductor diode lasers tend to be very easy to use, very reliable. They're in all your CD players, DVD players, all of those things. Uh, something like a dye laser, which is very commonly used for spectroscopy because it's widely tunable, is a pain to use because generally it has dye circulating in flowing liquid. And that liquid does things like corrode and leak and cause the laser need, to need to be sent in for repairs stuff like that. So 
depending on your application, whether or not you can tolerate something like that may come into the trade-offs of what different lasers might be appropriate for an experiment. Okay, so we talked a little bit about the history of spectroscopy. We talked a little bit about the history of lasers. It all started in the 50s, late 50s. Art Shallow and Charles Pound invented the laser. They had worked on microwave cavities. And they were curious if they could apply some of the same things they were doing to the optical regime. And they did. And in the, basically in the late 50s and early 60s, there was a lot of very rapid laser development. Um, in 66, the first broadly tunable laser was developed, the dye laser. I just mentioned that has wide application in spectroscopy. You can tune the laser frequency basically over the entire visible spectrum by choosing the appropriate dyes. Nowadays, there are alternatives to that. The Thai Sapphire laser is a broadly tunable solid state laser avoid some of the problems I just mentioned about liquid corroding your, your uh, laser. Um, the, let's see, a whole host of other lasers developed at this time. Um, some new spectroscopic techniques were developed, which we will talk about in detail. Uh, methods to eliminate uh, spreading of line width due to Doppler effect all sorts of time-resolved spectroscopy that could be done with Q-switched and uh, mode-locked lasers that had very short pulse lengths. Um, the age of nonlinear optics really took off once the laser was available. Um, a number of you know from taking 208 last term electro-optics that a material that has light pass through it can have a nonlinear response whereby the frequency of light can be converted. And the efficiency of that frequency conversion is largely dependent on the power going in. So it's something that you don't see at all with ordinary incandescent light bulbs, for instance. But shine a bright infrared laser through an appropriately prepared sample of uh, uh, like uh, lithium niobate, for instance, particular crystal, you can get green light coming out when you sent infrared light going in. And do some very interesting things to convert frequencies of certain lasers to other frequencies of interest. And that's very useful for spectroscopy because you could start with a relatively few number of lasers. For example, the Thai Sapphire laser, which I mentioned is broadly tunable and has a uh, is solid state, fairly reliable. And a neodymium YAG laser, which is very reliable and has some very good spectral characteristics. And with these two lasers, you could combine them, do all sorts of frequency conversion and generate virtually any frequency that you're interested in even frequencies that, uh, that aren't emitted directly from those lasers. And then just really in the past 10 years, laser cooling of atoms has been something that's been, uh, been very useful for doing all sorts of uh, spectroscopy at, at low temperatures, which is where a lot of the quantum mechanics of, of molecules can be isolated and understood. Uh, so that sort of brings us up to uh, the current state of lasers. We'll talk about all that in quite a bit more detail um, when we talk about lasers in the class. So summary, um, spectroscopy is just a technique, a tool that we're going to be learning to understand. We're going to cover the basics of how atoms interact with matter. Spectroscopy is shining light through matter and observing the light that comes out and how different frequencies are affected by the presence of that matter.
The reason lasers are important here is because their very narrow bandwidth allows very high spectral resolution um, and their high intensity, their ability to be focused allows you to do um, spectroscopy on materials that have very low absorption or very low interaction with light. You get enough photons, uh, you can deal with low absorption rates. So it really increases the types of materials that you can do spectroscopy on. If you want to learn more about any of this, um, most of this came from websites. There's the references. Um, starting next time, we'll be going pretty much over things covered in the book. And I don't have the, the uh, Demtroder, but we're going to be starting with chapter one in Demtroder. Chapter one and two will be the first uh, two lectures. So if you do have this book and you want to read ahead, uh, you can read in chapter one and two. And you can download the lecture notes just to see what we'll be covering.